Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, Charles Ross, a performance apparel specialist and lecturer at the Royal College of Art, talks to students about the challenges designers face in creating a more sustainable world and their opportunity to create real impact beyond the apparel industry. For those who don't know me, and it's the vast majority there who don't know me, I am the lead on a subject of performance sportswear design at the Royal College of Art, which sounds very posh and very academic. Um, I've been teaching this subject for over two decades now, and I'm essentially just a sad fabric geek. And I've been attached to the MA in fashion at the equivalent of the Parsons School of Design of New York, but I'm at the London one. Um, I teach all over the place. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through a pretty big subject very quickly, but the object is that you do not make copious amounts of notes. Amber's already got all these slides, so you're, you can plagiarize these slides afterwards um, if you need to. The key thing is to try and concentrate on what I'm saying, even though it's in an English accent, um, and see if it makes sense. I am not really big on having uh, massive presentations, although I've done you guys a really big presentation. I'm more interested in the questioning bit that happens afterwards. Um, we've got a, a definition in England that a lecture is when it goes from my notes to your notes without it passing through either brain on the way. Well, that's not the point of this. The point of this is to make you think, make you consider discussion, and hopefully make up your own mind. It's as simple as that. So, yeah, um, I'm going to talk about sustainability in the outdoor industry. Technically, I lead on performance sportswear design. If you translate that into English, you're all too young to know, but your course tutors will tell you at the Sydney Olympics, swimming changed entirely because men went from wearing really skimpy speedos to suddenly weighing three and a half meters of material of a project was that was called shark skin. That was one of my post-grad students, one of my PhDs, that was Fiona. The Adidas suit, which was a rival suit, came from Kathleen, who was also one of my 
postgrads. Um, two things that you need to remember. We make money by selling material. When we sold a man three and a half meters worth of material, we made an awful lot more money than sending him a third of a meter's worth of material. And the other thing was that we championed what Speedo were good at. Not every brand can appeal to every person. Speedo was a performance brand. So that's just an example of the type of thing that I do. But generally, I am the guy who, when I was uh, looking at that project, I had to use spell checker to make sure that I spelt coefficients of resistance properly. It was my students who could do all the work. I am an average lecturer, but I seem to attract good students. But that's rather a long introduction. So hold on. This is our situation. I'll use a lot of humor to communicate, and it's rather ironic humor. Um, are we actually going to choose to eliminate our species on this planet? If lockdown proved anything, it demonstrated quite clearly the planet was always going to recover. The question is whether our species would still be left there. It's a very delicate situation. And there's new legislation going through at the moment. I can talk European rules. I can talk uh, American rules. But we don't know. And one of the big things about sustainability is that if we knew what to do, we would do it. But we've never been in such a situation before. So there's a lot of trial and error going on. There's a lot of getting it wrong. And they're also, whereas... When I joined the outdoor trade in the last millennium, the trend was just to produce brilliant gear. All this millennium, we've been able to work out how good or how bad the gear really is. So all this millennium, the trend has been to produce less bad gear. As a Yeah. Um, here I'm looking at the, the subject of consumption. Consumption is going to be one of the big things to be tackled. It's not properly addressed at the moment. If I sum up consumption to you, there's a LSE lecturer, Jason Hickel. He's written a book called Less Is More. Um, that book talks about flatlining in our industry, as in doing nothing, is a 3% growth. But if you have a cumulative interest on 3% every year, if you speak to those people who have mortgages, they'll talk to you about compound interest. If you have 3% growth every year, after 24 years, you will have grown 100%. Well, our population's not expanding every generation, a generation being 25 years, by doubling. So there's something that needs to change. The question is what? And textiles has this awful reputation about being it's actually a wrong reputation we're the second most polluting in the world to tell you the truth we're number four or five but we shouldn't boast about that um it's not a good thing but we can't work out whether textiles are a vital necessity like food or whether they're a pleasure where do we fit in between and we are walking a knife edge, and if we go the wrong way, it will be bad for everything associated to textiles. And when I mean textiles, I generally mean outdoor product. Um, and if I was to ask the public, what are the problems? This is the single biggest problem. Um, they talk about plastic in the ocean. 
and I'll come to a bit of detail about plastic in the ocean as this presentation go, goes through. But yeah, um, the public's awareness of the issues facing us aren't matching with reality. And that's something that you have to manage because you are expected to deliver what the public wants, but you have a responsibility to actually educate them and bring them on. Uh, a picture here with a statistic from 2015. Um, that's the amount of textiles that goes into landfill every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every year. It's basically a truckload. A phenomenal amount of textiles gets buried. Um, that's not something we should be proud of. Uh, I live in Britain. Britain's a relatively small island. We're running out of holes in the ground in which to bury textiles. And if we start burning it, then that just adds to the carbon footprint. But if you look at the number down there from 2015, uh, they were talking about the amount of clothing owned in the UK, I believe that figure is almost 8 billion now. If you guys know what 8 billion is, it's the number of people on this planet. So if I was to attribute one pair of socks to every person on this planet, that's the amount of socks that we have in the United Kingdom. Anyway, um, this is where the challenge is. The growing part of the world population is not in the West, the global North. It's actually in the East, Asia. And it's Asia that are going to increase up to, well, beyond 9 billion, pushing towards 10 billion in the near future, within the next decade. And they're copying what we have done in the West, and we have a responsibility to set a good example. At the moment, you hear stories about one new coal-fired power station being opened every single week in China. It's true. They're doing it because they need the power, and we have shown them how to get power. If we do not lead the way in showing them better practice, it's not going to be good for our species on the planet. But this is what I'm more concerned at. Um, we've. This is actually a lot more relevant than I thought because I was just playing with a chatbot last week. Um, people are dumbing everything down. And as a species, we're really intelligent. And if you appeal to people's intelligence, they react really, really well. Um, but people are getting lazy and they're just taking the easy option. And I'm going to run through a whole succession of issues now. Uh, if you know what the Uyghurs are, well done. That's the coerced Chinese Muslims in the west of the country uh, who are effectively being kept in concentration camps. Sounds absolutely horrendous. Um, we all buy our cotton from there. And we were buying better cotton. A lot of organic cotton came from there. The BCI cotton came from there. But if you look at what sustainability is. It belongs to the person who does corporate social responsibility. And I'll talk about a few more details about what's in CSR. But the social side, we really need to catch up on. We've got quite good in making product less bad. There are other areas that we need to pay attention to. But yeah, that's the Uyghurs.
This is the Owl Sea, which was the 10th largest sea in the world, inland sea in the world. Picture on the left from the last millennium, picture on the right from 2015. 90% of the water had been irrigated out for crops. Rana Plaza happened over a decade ago now. Um, a thousand people died. Uh, what was bad about Rana Plaza and well, what was good was that they were they were making textiles there and the textile industry collaborated together and did a lot of the sorting out of the problem. Um, the problem was actually something within the building industry. There were permissions granted for a two story building. It turned out to be a six-story building. The foundations were only suitable for that of a two-story building. They also had serious air conditioning units there. The reason why Rana Plaza became so well-known is the TV crews were actually in Bangladesh at the time filming a follow-up to an incident five and a half months earlier where a factory had been chaining its fire escape shut so that its employees didn't go out for fag breaks during during the manufacturing and yeah the world's media was there and we found out the good news he says being optimistic is that we've seen a lot of progress within bangladesh towards the social responsibility standards hopefully that's going to continue i can look back now to china i remember when china was deregulated and now they have a minimum wage um which is causing a slightly different set of problems but um yeah uh, there is progress going on if i was to depress you more periodic table uh for those people who were serious on science I don't need to explain to you. If you look at the red, those are the rare earths that we're running out of, and we've got to do something about it. If any of you have seen, uh, this is a movie that will that came out just before lockdown. It's not the most romantic movie in the world. Uh, Mark Gruffalo's okay, um, but if you watch the movie. Um, there were a lot of very curious things. It looks like a really complex tale, an investigation tale, and a legal case. And then at the end, they reveal it's a totally true story. And it actually really quite hurts because we've grown up with the rumors of the tobacco industry and the conspiracy of the 1960s and 70s when the tobacco industry told us that, yes, smoking was good for us. It looks like the textile industry was just as evil. Charles isn't being that optimistic at the moment, I have to say. Apologies. This is graffiti that came out when London hosted the 2012 Olympics. It, it's a Banksy. I'm a bit of a fan of Banksy, um, which I think it, he's he he he's on the money with it. It was a image of an Asian uh, factory worker. And it brings us to where we are now. That's me on the left in London. I've got through COVID. Uh, I am playing with the recession at the moment, although Brexit is now as uh, Brexit and the recession are equally confused between the two. The climate change, uh, COP27, we all paid attention to, which was in Egypt, because the year before they'd had COP26 in Glasgow. 
I would challenge you and say the bigger problem is not the climate change. The climate change is something which is reasonably measurable, which is why we're doing it. Our biggest problem is the collapse of biodiversity. If you don't understand biodiversity, it's essentially the thing that keeps the bees alive. The reason why we need the bees is that they uh, cross-fertilize 80% of the arable crop. If we don't have bees, we don't have food which is pretty straightforward. Um, this is a slide to try and uh, uh, highlight that. Most of you might remember your parents cleaning the windshield, getting all the bugs off. Um, whereas right now, I, I'm not seeing flies stuck to my windscreen. The question is, in 30 years' time, another 30 years' time, will, will our species still be here? This is another graphic which will become more and more relevant. I would be very impressed if any of you know this is based on what's called Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. Um, she's one of the gurus of sustainability. I'll give you more clues on sustainability, but if you want a one-line answer to what sustainability is, according to Charles, it's longevity. There will always be good and bad product, but if we can make it last longer, that is the future. Our hassle at the moment is the churn, the amount of product we get through. Even if you create the best product in the world, if we consume too much of it, that's where the hassle is. And on the back of that, uh, Dame Vivian Westwood, who we unfortunately lost quite recently. Dame Vivian Westwood was the original punk designer. Um, she said it far easier than this. This is the detail for you guys to be distracted by. But she said, Ch choose well, buy expensive, make it last. Quality, not quantity. So technically, I can finish this presentation on sustainability there because Vivian Westwood has given you the answer. Quality, not quantity. And I'm sure when you actually read the words on this, you'll you'll work out. We've all bought something off the internet and we've gone for the lowest price. And every so often, going for the lowest price isn't necessarily the best thing for us. And that has to be balanced with what's shown within this slide. Um, something I hinted at earlier uh, we actually have a really informed consumer base. We live in an information age. Everyone walks around with the Encyclopedia Britannica in their back pocket, permanently connected to the Wi-Fi. Um, people do care. And the best thing about that is especially Gen Z. Gen Z are the people born in the last years of the millennium since then, for which all of you, apart from Amber, unfortunately, are part of. Amber's a proper millennial. I'm a grumpy Gen X. Um, but I also start to throw in some people who can really make a difference. Buckmeister Fuller, um, classic designer, superb. He was the actual guy who came up with the geodesic tent. So, yes, he does actually have attributions within the outdoor industry. And the role that you're hoping to graduate into, whether it's as a designer, whether it's as a product manager, 
there is a lot of responsibility that comes with it. And I hope that you address the responsibility of the position because you can make a difference. But if I flip back to the other side, um, yeah, fashion. One of the great things about fashion is that it makes us happy. And it's this equation with that awful word in purple, obsolescence. We create a demand and then we kill a demand. We need to question that. I'm not saying it's completely wrong, but we need to question that. And this is what we get diverted by. We get diverted by something called greenwashing. And there's going to be an awful lot of legislation about greenwashing coming out in the next five years. Essentially, greenwashing will make lawyers very rich. Um, I understand why greenwashing happens. It's people want to boast about doing something good. And quite often they're naive to how good or how minor good they have done. And they want to talk about it. They want people to pat themselves on the back. But it's a long journey. And as I've said before, it's not a journey where we know the target is. If it was a sat-nav, it would tell you how to get out of Utah to head to the East Coast. But when you're halfway to the East Coast, it would recalibrate and say, no, you need Route 66 now. By the time you're within 100 miles of the East Coast, it will start to give you more more directions. What I'm talking about is only by progressing with, with what we think sustainable practices are we finding out what really is making the difference. And there are two things. There's how to do it sustainably or more sustainably. There's also what the adoption is, the adoption rate, which is how many people are on board with it. You could have the best product in the world, but if no one's buying it, it's a complete waste of time. Walmart came up with a very good solution. Um, they were doing a project with Mr. Shunan out of Patagonia 15 years ago. And Yvonne Schoenard realized that to improve Walmart by just 2%, by making them less bad by 2%, greatly outshadowed the effect if he started a whole new Patagonia. Schoenard was intelligent. He went to where the people were, where the mass is. And that's the task that we've got to take on now. Not the elite. We've got to go for where the majority is. And right now, we're all talking about carbon emissions, and this is carbon tunnel vision. As you can tell, chances are the, the, the words are a bit small at the moment, but when you get the slides at the end of this, there are, I think, 13 different areas that CSR are responsible for. They're all interconnected. Um, the one that you might not know is entrification, which is uh, water pollution. So there's water scarcity and there's also water pollution going on. But yes, different things that we need to be. And overconsumption's right down the bottom. Oh, I'm glad that that's on the slide. Uh, other great people uh, lie. Um, I work in, as you know, a school of fashion. We've got lots of people who predict fashion trends. I can proudly say I ignore them all apart from lie. Uh, Lie doesn't talk about whether purple's coming in or checks are coming in, but she talks about the anthropological development of man and how it's going to match. She is a trend forecaster. Other people who do good 
uh, anthropological predictions. Uh, you've got Malcolm Gladwell. Um, he's the guy who wrote two two books, which I'm sure you've heard the titles of, The Tipping Point and also Outliers. Both really good texts, although the one that I would recommend isn't so popular. It's called Blink. Blink is about two things, your gut reaction, the thing that you can't articulate well enough, and also how we use our visual appearance to communicate so much more. Although I am on screen and you're listening to my words, you're concentrating on the pictures. Actually, the content of my words is not the major part of this message. You're going to remember the pictures and the words that I that I put on screen rather than precisely what I'm saying. So yeah, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Good book to read. Otherwise, oh, Charles, going back to humour. Um, yes, I'm stating the obvious here, um, but I'm sure you guys will, will realise it because you grew up with the Minions. This is a UK statistic. It's from the B-Lab, which is the forerunner to B Corp, which sums it up pretty well. The public think brands act in the most responsible way. They're willing to delegate the responsibility to the brands to do the best things. When you work with brands, you could really be surprised how uncaring they are and how profit-motivated they are. Smaller brands, uh, ones with owner-managers, are different. But when you work for the big companies, and remember, it's the big companies that need to change the most. But yeah, that's a UK statistic that we're slightly embarrassed by. And just to sum it up, yes, if we're going to continue with this theme of average, uh, I presume in the States you still have tin openers like this? Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> it's been going for 50 years, and it's been annoying people for 50 years. Um, other problems. This is one on water scarcity. Uh, we've had the oil wars of the Middle East. It's very debatable whether the next wars are going to be water wars. Certainly, if you were in California, I think they already have water wars there. Um, then we've got the heat point on the map. Now, I am that old. I was around in 1976, which was when we had our really big drought and everyone in the civilized West, I call it the civilized West, the global North, was talking about the drought conditions. And I remember standpipes in the street and we compare it to last summer. The climate is changing and it's not just an anomaly. It is happening and we need to do something about it because it is pointing, putting the rest of us out of kilter. Now, if I go back to some really more interesting things to do with the outdoor industry, um, you guys, I presume you, you know about the Don't Buy This Jacket advert from 2011, the one on Black Friday. Um, Patagonia, Patagonia actually don't produce the best gear in the world. Um, that's debatable, whether it's the best gear, whether it's the most sustainable gear or what. But what they do do is communicate their values the best. And that attracts people to them. If everything else is the same, we are attracted to brands that have strong values. And what they did with this advert, even though it saw an uplift of their sales by almost 30%, 
it brought the question of consumption to the to the main force. Should we be keep on buying things? And the effect of buying things and the ongoing problems of it. Patagonia dared to raise it. And I think they did a brilliant job because of it. Um, now, I'm also going to chuck in the occasional solution. This is something that you're not yet on. This is regenerative agriculture. Field in South Africa divided it in two. One side is tr traditional agriculture. The other side with the luscious green is regenerative agriculture, which is so much better for the planet. This is the detail of it. If you look at that's not a hobbit that's a normal sized person what you're looking at in this picture is the amount of roots of the plant regenerative agriculture is all about how long you can get the roots because you all did science at high school and you remember photosynthesis in photosynthesis carbon dioxide goes into plants oxygen comes back out that carbon doesn't disappear it's got to go somewhere if it's free carbon it goes in the air joins together with oxygen forms the greenhouse gas but if you use if you use regenerative agricultural technique it gets stored as actually the roots roots of the plants are dead good because what they do is that they act as a way of holding on to the soil they increase the irrigation and when you look at these statistics, you'll suddenly go how powerful agriculture could be to our climate crisis. The Rodale Institute, by the way, are the people who audit Patagonia's regenerative agricultural product, which their cotton product launches this spring. Um, regenerative agriculture summed up in five areas. I've talked about soil health here in the UK because we are not treating our soil well, we're losing up to two inches of soil every year, uh, blow away or wash away. We still have flooding. Uh, the difference between a regenerative agricultural project and a non-regenerative, if rain falls, if heavy rain falls, it will wash into the rivers within about three days. If you have a regenerative agriculture system going on, it's increased by 30 what that means in English, rain falls, it goes into the river 100 days later. So we have mitigation about the flooding. We've also got much more local farming trading groups because it's the trading groups because of the extra work. It's anti-big farming, industrial farming, factory farming, whatever you want to call it. But the most important thing is that biodiversity which you'll remember I mentioned in an earlier slide, although it's the carbon sequestration that the accountants love because it's numbers. Uh, in really simple terms, if you guys all started to use wool as a wadding in a jacket, um, so rather than using polyester, you use wool, and that wool came from a regenerative agricultural process, the average wool in a jacket would have sequestered 100 kilos of carbon. If you sell 10 of those jackets, that's the equivalent of one ton of carbon sequestered. This is where the difference is. But yeah, back to the outdoor industry. Uh, Jason Kibbe, who leads the HIG, who are the audit scale that most of us use, um, this is your standard sourcing map of just a waterproof jacket. 
And you can start to imagine how geopolitical that is, how far in advance you you have to order things. This is the solution. Um, For those of you who do want to go into business for yourself, the future is collaborations. Um, These are two projects which I've worked on. Christopher Rayburn is a hip and trendy label in London. Christopher Rayburn himself is the creative director at Timberland over in New Hampshire. Finisterre is a cold water surfing brand. Uh, so they don't have pictures of people wearing board shorts, you know, enjoying suntans. It's hardcore surfing. The projects that they've done together, small brands working together to actually magnify the results. That's the really interesting stuff going on now. But yeah, um, Amber asked me to talk about some serious subjects as well. So having entertained you, I'm now going to slow down the pace and we're going to talk about one or two more serious things. Um, Durability. I get associated an awful lot with the question of durability. Everyone who talks durability talks about the physical durability of a product. We do not need to solve physical durability. In the last 70 years, yarn engineering has improved so much. I have teenage daughters. They now go and buy pre-washed, pre-worn, pre-ripped jeans because they can't be bothered to put in the wear to create that. I'm wandering around with a pair of salvage jeans that might take a decade to put some decent stains into. They can just buy a new pair next week at the shop and instantly get there. So yeah, that's physical durability. Lot has changed. We're not suffering from physical problems. Fit durability is something that happens when you turn middle-aged and things go south on your body. But you most probably see it with your younger brothers and sisters, how they're growing out of clothing that's bought for them really quickly. Cultural durability, I will talk about, but it's when your society rejects what you're wearing. When I was a kid, there was a group called the Bay City Rollers that everyone was into in Europe. The Bay City Rollers wore uh, tartan. Now nobody wears tartan. That's cultural durability when society tells you that you have to change something. But the area I'm most interested in is emotional durability. How long do you love a garment for that you keep wearing it, that you keep on using it? And it might be easier to flip it and not call it emotional durability, but call it emotional obsolescence. And this is the fashion industry. The fashion industry is based on churn. It's based on people giving up garments because they lust after new garments. The marketing people are doing a really good job in making them want something different. Even though the product that you've got as a technical outdoor performance stuff still works well. But it's just persuaded you there is a new type of Gore-Tex. There's a new type of fleece and you need to buy into it. So, yeah, the four durabilities, physical, fit, cultural and emotional durability. But I also want to highlight on this slide, classic case of putting far too much detail on one slide. Clothing has four factors. Um, And if you reflect back on your own wardrobe, 
Um, the first thing about clothing that we use is that it has to be practical. If you're a man, that means you've got to have pockets. You know, there are rules about dress and all the rest of it that fits into practical. If you have two pairs of jeans, which are equally practical, you will choose the pair of jeans, which is more comfortable. So we've gone from a utilitarian stratification now to a biogenic stratification when you have two identical garments. If you have clothing which is practical and comfortable comparatively, you will then go down to what we call an identifying or a tribal psychogenic factors. I work in the outdoor trade, so I will either be wearing a fleece or I'll be wearing a check shirt. That's the way to tell me, full stop. It's my tribe. It's what I belong to. The fourth factor of outdoor product is actually the hedonic side, the fun side. We take a lot of pride in our appearance. We like dressing up. Nobody wants to talk about it publicly, but clothing actually brings real joy. And it also raises a very big philosophical question because one item of clothing is never going to break the planet, but it can make a person really happy. And I'm very careful to say one item of clothing. I'm not talking about the churn of buying one new item of clothing every week. If you save up, if you lust after a particular product, it can bring you immense joy. Now, performance sportswear, which is what I do, uses the scale practical, comfortable, identifying fun. Athleisure, which is a much more interesting segment, much bigger segment, actually uses the four stratifications but reversed. So the first thing it must do, it must give you pride that you of you wearing it. Then it's the identification features. Then it's the comfortable features. And the last thing it needs to be is practical because most yarn engineering has improved so much. Um, to give you an idea of how much yarn engineering has improved, the British did not climb Everest in 1952 even though the history books will tell you that, it was a New Zealand beekeeper and a Nepalese lad who climbed it in 1952. It was a British expedition, so we've claimed responsibility for it. We climbed Everest in 1976. The best outdoor clothing in 1976 was the entry, was below the standards of performance of entry-level gear at the turn of the millennium. So we went from the most expensive gear performance, and in just one generation, that was actually the lowest hanging fruit, the cheapest stuff. That's how much gear progresses. Anyway, yes, a rather serious slide. Um, it's going to be matched by another serious slide. Oh, my goodness, your brain's going to ache. Um, everyone talks now about the circular economy. Circularity, it's the way to go. And I agree with you. Circularity is defined by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, EMF, um, is about three things. Uh, eliminate, keep it going for longer, and also regenerate. So leave systems better for the next generation. Now, when we apply this to apparel, you'll actually see we start with revitalize, recondition, repair, resale, and the rest. Most people in apparel talk about the circular economy and almost the rush to do textile to textile recycling. 
If you look at the list, that's number nine on the list. There are lots. The, the definition of the circular economy is to keep the original product going for as long as possible. Only when you have used up all the initial eight options should you use recycling. Now, after recycling, there's a lot of talk about biodegradation, compostable fabrics and the such like. I am fascinated. I have done a lot of work in biodegradation. Um, there's something very interesting, but we're not yet applying it in the right way. Its role to me is after textile to textile recycling because, and of course, it's above landfill. But the amount of energy needed to decompose a garment when the gases that normally come off a, a, a garment breaking down are both carbon dioxide and methane, which are both greenhouse gases, isn't particularly good. And then you look at the amount of resource to recreate that fiber, to regrow it, it's a much bigger impact. So yes, try and keep the original product going for as long as possible. Ooh, more stuff to stretch your mind. Um, yeah, welcome to the 21st century. I've put up five statements, which I think you'll all nod to and go, yeah, to show you the truth, you know, Uber didn't take on the taxi service at all. The taxi service had become unwieldy. Technology was blamed for it, but actually what went wrong is the existing services were not focused on the consumer. And that's the most important thing. I've already mentioned it once. You should be in a situation where it's not only the good product that you're doing, but it's about the adoption. And that adoption is how consumer focused you are, which is extremely important. Oh, back to uh, Papanek. Um, 1970s, uh, classic interpretation of design. Uh, it's the type of quote that you bring up when you've got to submit proper essays to, to the staff. Um, throw in a, a, a Victor quote and you'll do well. Um, the original clarity design thinker, without a doubt. And here he's talking about the conflict between sales and marketing. Onto a, a much more modern one, uh, something we call the outdoor buying behavior model. Uh, essentially, this is we, we also call it Dante's Hell in four layers. If you're going to buy a new garment and you are not aware of the various brands, if you want to buy a, a, a waterproof jacket, the most important thing to you for that jacket is how it looks it's the aesthetics whether you know how it's displayed on the wall um how it yes just everything about the garment if you don't think the garment looks good either on display or when you put it on it's a non-starter the next thing so if you've got two or more jackets which you'll be can which you're willing to go with the next thing down is um, the pricing point. The pricing point is not the cheapest price. Pricing has so many other influences. There are some very good strategies about making pricing higher and people perceive extra value. 
Um, I've done a lot of work on cotton T-shirts, and it's really quite surprising how a Ralph Lauren or a Tommy Hilfiger T-shirt is of a lower quality than some of the supermarket apparel. But because of the pricing structure, it puts it in our head that it's a much better thing. So yeah, if you've got, if they're comparable on their looks, if they're comparable on their prices and what you want to pay, then you will look at a double feature. You will both look at the fit of the garment, but you will also look at what material and the benefits that material will bring. So when I when we first devised this about 20 years ago, there were just three, three levels. We had the look at the top, the pricing, uh, the feature and the performance all on the same level. The pricing has definitely come out of that, but only if all those um, five things are, no, four things uh, are matching, will you consider anything else? And if I take you down to the most obvious one, it's the sustainability, it's the eco features. You could have the most sustainable garment in the world but if it does not look good, if it's not in the right price bracket, if it does not fit and provide the role, no one's going to consider it. That's the difference with performance sportswear. There are bigger priorities. Yes, we would all like better garments, but the garments have to do several things before we consider that aspect of it. Okay, more social commentary. Um, I think you guys will realize we're in the less is more generation right at the moment. Um, you can go through as many of these as you want. Uh, I particularly like um, leaders and shameless. Um, but then I come from a country where we have a Republican government, which is intent on committing suicide at the moment, I would say. But yes, nice distraction. So we have the less is more generation. We also have the change going on. Um, and whether you want to call it woke or, or whatever other description, the key thing is the white line at the bottom. We are changing from actually selling products to selling services. It's not owning the jacket. It's the experience you have in the jacket. And because of that, the recommendation to change the business model is now one of the most curious. The business model at the moment is all about consumption. Actually, why don't we just rent the garments? And I'll just leave that question out there. Do we need to own everything? The good thing about Gen Z, which is you guys, you guys are going to move out of home eventually. You'll move into rented accommodation. The first thing you'll notice about rented accommodation is there's no room for all your junk. Your wardrobe becomes a lot smaller. You also want your wardrobe to be more reflective of the values that you have. Um, something I talked about with Malcolm Gladwell's Blink earlier. But yeah, product to a service. And then as I start to wind down from this presentation, uh, several things to bear in mind. If you know what, an, what a country overshoot day is, essentially everyone starts the same in January and then you use up, you get to the date when your country has used up all the resources it should in one year 
if we're going to keep going. You will notice that already Qatar and Luxembourg, we've passed those dates. They've already used more resources than they can replenish within a year. On March 13th, so literally less than a month away, we've got North America being, you know, going over the edge. Um, Britain's not doing particularly well. We're only in May. But under this theory, we should all move to Indonesia and Jamaica. The problem is if we all move to Indonesia and Jamaica, their Earth Overshoot Day will, sh- will zip forward. But this is just an illustration. Uh, you will hear general quotes. There was a movie that came out 15 years ago called An Inconvenient Truth. Um, Al Gore. Al Gore. Al Gore was a vice president, wasn't he? Yeah, he was the vice president of the United States. Worth watching on YouTube. Really good movie. And actually, what he said 15 years ago has been pretty right. You know, yeah, some of the statistics, some of the metrics are out. But the general direction, you know, and we all paid attention and said, yeah, that's a really good thing. But did we change our behavior? And no, we didn't change our behavior. But yes, things not to look forward to. So I'm going to come to that issue that I mentioned right at the start. If you ask the public what's the biggest problem with outdoor clothing at the moment, they will talk plastic in the ocean. And this is what they're obsessed by. And if I take you down to the bottom left of the screen, uh, you can actually see what contributes the most amount of plastic to the sea. It's actually not textiles. It's vehicle uh, tire dust, um, single biggest contributor of to, of pollution to the ocean. You've then got pallet spills. After pallet spills, it's actually paints. If you join construction, building paint, and also marine paint, anti-foul, you will see that they outshine textiles. But textiles has taken one in, yeah, one in the middle of the heart that if you wash a fleece, you're going to cause loads of problems. And it's the microfilaments, the things that you can't see, um, which is the big danger. Because what happens with the microfilaments is the plankton can eat them. The fish eat the plankton, the birds eat the fish, the animals eat the birds, we eat the animals. So therefore, it enters up in our food chain. Um, Here's some pretty hard statistics. Um, And this, I've singled out cotton. Um, When you look at how much cotton there is in the world's cropping, and then you look at what proportion of uh, chemicals are used on it, it's really quite shocking. Organic cotton is less than 1% of the cotton crop. Very small percentage indeed. Uh, I've already talked about the water footprint, so I don't need to go back into that. But our biggest danger um, with plastic in the ocean is not the filament, not the fibers, but they're dodgy chemicals already in the sea. And three of those chemicals are what we call agricultural wash-offs. So stuff that is used to inhibit and boost the growth of plants, synthetic chemicals, they get washed into the sea. And it's those things which are very close to the forever chemicals that you'll see in dark waters. 
not not the cheeriest thing of Charles to talk about. Sorry, but we need to be responsible. If you study the Inuit population of Greenland, their fertility has dropped by 82% due to the chemicals in the sea. Some other things to challenge. Here I'm looking at, uh, we all think that a recycled paper bag is the best option for packaging. If you are going to use a plastic bag, make sure it's biodegradable or compostable. I've just put up the five factors, which is the energy of consumption, the amount of waste in the process, the offshoot of the carbon dioxide from the process, how much water is used and how much fuel is used. Actually, the polythene bag, the virgin polythene bag has the lowest impact. And before you guys all start to send a thousand emails, I know it's really easy to copy people into emails. And there's been this trend for shops not to give out the copious amounts of free plastic bags they do, you know, packaging. They want us to take back the reusable plastic bags. In the UK, we put, well, across the whole of Europe, there is now a charge on the disposable plastic bags. There's a 10 cents charge. Um, since then, the consumption of them has dropped by over 90%. One polyethylene plastic bag is the same amount of energy as sending one email or copying one extra person into that email. But yes, uh, on the wind down, um, this is a text called The World is on Fire But We're Still Buying Shoes by Alec Leach. He's an insider of the industry. This is uh, his book, The World is on Fire, only came out last year. And he raised four brilliant questions. And to me, this was more reflective of how the consumer, again, I mentioned it, believes that brands are going to act in the most responsible way. Consumers are really confused. Look at option four. Uh, well, point four. Why do brands not do best practice? Full stop. The consumers think it's crazy. Brands that they want to trust, that they believe in, are not actually looking out for them in the long term. Now, to, to contrast that, Olden Wicker is, I think she's a New York-based journalist, um, and she has summed up the textile industry really, really well. And sorry, but this hurts. Um, we're really good at diverting the conversation. We make great stories about how well we're doing and how we're using a recycled fiber. And we call it the 2% tail. Yeah, we're really keen about boasting about what 2% of our impact is and how we're making that 2% championed. Actually, what we need to do is look at the big thing. And the big thing which I mentioned earlier was consumption. And if you go back to almost what I mentioned right at the start, to me, the future is longevity. So yeah, those people who have seen a Charles presentation before know that I end with this classic Banksy slide. A um, couple of things to notice. One, that's my email address. You're welcome to find me and ask me questions if you want. Problem is, if you do email me, 
please can you put in two lines at the start about who you are and where you're from? Because otherwise I'd get loads of stuff and I think, who are these people? But the one which is more important is below where my name is, Banksy is a graffiti artist. Don't be distracted by girl letting go of balloon. The textile industry, the outdoor textile industry has done so much good. I do believe there is always hope. I certainly believe that you guys have the power to change things. And I don't believe that's blind optimism. If you guys want to do it, and hopefully I've revealed to you how scary it is out there if we don't do it, there is hope. And the textile industry has done so much good. And if I run and talk about the textile industry, if I talk about a rather current subject of transportation, um, there's a lot of buzz around electric vehicles at the moment. And we all know that Teslas and the such like are being powered by dirty fuel. But I believe the future is the electric vehicle. Unless we put our investment, unless we pay for our electric vehicles now, that industry will never have the money to make better fuel. We've got better cars. We need better fuel. But it takes a collaboration between a brand and their customer. And I believe they both want to trust each other. But we cannot expect brands to keep on innovating and to put all their money in trying to develop something without having partnerships. And if you remember, I showed you the slide earlier about where I think the future of brands is. I believe the future of brands is in collaborations. And I summed up Christopher Rayburn working with Finisterre. If a brand can partner their people, their customers, that's going to be the most amazing force in the world. So, yeah, that is not my last slide. This is my last slide. And I always put up this slide last because it's a wonderful tactic because everyone spends their whole time reading it rather than asking me questions. But those people who know me, yeah, this is the bit where it becomes a bit more two-way. So I've, I've had a bit of a rant. I've tried to paint to you that the world is not in a good place but we do have signs. And as I hinted throughout the presentation, apparel is not the worst thing in the world, but what apparel and outdoor product offers is that it's something we desire. It's something that we lust after. And hence the communication channel that opens when we're investigating buying new product is the most phenomenal thing. And I know the easiest answer to always give when they say, can you example a sustainable clothing company is to say Patagonia. What makes Patagonia so good is they don't oversell their product. They use that attraction period that you have, that period where you're just trying to pick up as much as possible about the product. They're not communicating about the product. They're communicating about how you should change your practice. And if you buy another jacket, yeah, that's consumption. You're not going to save the world. But if buying that jacket opens your idea to how to change your transport, your heating, or your consumption, and when I mean consumption, in this case, it's your diet. Uh, 
I believe there's a role in the world for meat because we need it on regenerative agriculture because it's all part of the system. But we need to get three rid of. We need to cut down on the number of livestock by three quarters if we're going to have a regenerative system. But what outdoor product has, and it's like a magical one. People desire it. And if you use that attention span to get people to question, do I need a second and third car? You know, could I use an e-bike? Should I be using solar panels on the roof? Should I go meat-free Mondays? If you can get those questions to be debated, your clothing will have a greater effect on the impact on the planet than all the bad that clothing does. So, Amber, I've waffled for far too long. Does that make sense? Have you guys stayed awake? Yeah, you've given us a lot of food for thought. I um, absolutely love it. You guys, what other questions do you have for Charles um, while we've got him on for a few more minutes? Feel free to uh, either... No one's, no, no one's thrown anything into the chat apart from Jack. And it's always I know, I think they're that. too busy listening, Charles. You've given us a lot of great things to look at. <laughs> the good news is that they can all go back and get the slides from you, Amber. Yes, so, I will make those available yeah. to them. But the whole point of tonight is to paint a picture and to make you guys realize of the most amazing power and opportunity that you guys have within your control. And I'm almost jealous. You know, I'm now past it, but you guys have the ability to make a difference. Yeah, they've heard me say it over and over again. Like you guys are making the ripples, you guys asking the questions, showing up into your design team meetings, asking the questions, having the hard conversations, um, rethinking the way design has always been done and trying to do it differently. I have so much hope in this in this group as I've sit and watched some of their studio projects. Very, very impressed with some of the problems that they're trying to solve. And it's easy as someone who's been around for a while to say, well, that's never been done before. I don't know if that will work. But I mean, that's what we need, right? We that's need that. superb. That's superb. If it's that. never been done before, do it. Yeah. You know, if you fail, the whole point of academia is to stop you falling flat on your face but certainly to try things i i i have a question charles Happ uh, who are you do i know you chase <laughs> when are you going to teach a full class for us charles come on we got to get um, you out here <laughs> if you want me to i chase i will always help out if i can it's more the case of finding me you are a hard man to find. Thanks for your help. Appreciate well, no, no, no. Least, least I can do. Um, but can I go to Ben's question? Yes. Let's ben, yeah. phenomenal question, because I hinted it all the way through the presentation. If you can change the business model, if you can go to a service model, that's the rapidly expanding area right now. Um, there's a Japanese art called... Uh, uh, I can't remember where they repair their, their Ming vases with liquid gold. And actually a repaired item is more valuable than the, than the item in its principal state. Is it King Shu? Something like that. Um, yeah. The service economy 
repairing stuff. Right now, if I had no money to set up in outdoor product, the first service I would offer is to wash a Gore-Tex jacket properly. I, uh, Chase can vouch for me. I can bore you stupid on washing machines and detergents. You should never use a washing detergent for a Gore-Tex jacket. It's got an anhydrous finishing and things like that. You need to clean the machine, things like that. If you wash one of these waterproof permeable membranes, you will suddenly revitalize it because although you think you've kept it clean on the outside, every time you perspire, the detritus, this, the, the oily stuff within your skin compromises the DWR goes into the pores so you could make an awful lot of money by just getting people with their 500 dollar jackets and making them work properly again people will love you and people are happy to pay 10 percent a year servicing that's very cheap you know to them they buy a jacket they think after two or three years it's going to be worn out so i won't be using it if you can keep it like a car at that 100 percent performance for that period people will love you and they'll pay you at least 50 dollars a year okay oh second question what's the biggest difference that i have personally made to the industry um really good question uh, the biggest difference, I think I've added to so much global warming by talking too much. Um, <laughs> no, my my best thing, I know I am an average lecturer. Um, some of the students which I have taught have gone on to do far better things than I than I have. The one what the the thing that I always refer back to, I've told you about the Speedo swimming suit. Another project that came out at exactly the same time in backpacks, we all have an adjustable backpack system. If we want a comfortable load, it's just like a car seat. It's got to be the exact distance from the pedals for you to drive comfortably. The problem is it's a very, it's a big intrusion on personal space because to fit a backpack properly to someone, you've got to get right up close to them. And someone called Larry uh, invented a tab which goes on top of an adjustable harness just here. And if it's on your topmost shoulder scheme, it meant that the harness was properly adjusted for you. So it's like women and bras. If you ask bra experts, they will tell you that 80% of women are wearing the wrong bra for them. It's the same on outdoor backpacks. 80% of people have normally got the wrong adjustment part on their backpack. He put on this tab, suddenly a shop assistant standing two yards away can say, no, you need to move that. So, yeah, it's and the best thing about it was that it added five cents to the manufacturing cost of the backpack. Anyone can do anything with a lot of money. The skill is actually doing it with no money at all. But another a really good that. question here. Yeah. <laughs> um. I like what you're saying. It's a very intelligent question. How do you as designers communicate? Um, I think you've overlooked the most marvelous thing without realizing it. Communication within companies is done by the marketing teams and the comms teams. So they give out politically correct, perfect messages to sell. 
please retain power of all your communications. Don't delegate it to someone. People do not understand design. Let designers communicate designs within teams. So to answer your question, how do you suggest as designers do you communicate? Um, the idea of doing something a little more expensive, it's, it's, to me, it's quite simple. We have all grown up lusting after a particular product, and we will save if it's outside our price band. Um, if you want to play the catch-22, we know the internal um, downward cycle of just going cheaper and cheaper. So, which is why I told you the Vivian Westwood quote, which is why I put up that slide. And I'll give you a classic case of that slide. We all won't publicly admit it, but we bought clothing off the internet because it was a really good price. And that clothing, we got all the details for. It told you it was eight ounce cotton, that it was a, an offset weave. And it sounded brilliant to us until we got it in our hands and we realized what cheap product it was. That's a really good reason. If you're going to buy something, you need to touch it. You need to feel it. That is a more expensive service. You brought up a good question here about how do we convince people to not go for the lowest price, but actually to go for the best option. To me, the solution is, as designers, you influence so much, try and influence the communication. But perhaps the best thing is that I know I am part of that old fuddy-duddy generation that's wearing out. You guys are the people with much better values and you're buying on your values. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the fast fashion period you go through. We all went through fast fashion. I went through, I think, purple and flares in, at the end of the 70s. Everybody goes there. But you guys are coming out of it and you are buying product that has values that you want to be associated to. And I think that's a big congratulations. Does that answer your question? I've skirted around it without giving you something definite. Yes, it does. Thank you so yes, much. I have a question for you, Charles. So Happily, we, talked Matt. About, we talked about Patagonia a yep. lot. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. So they're kind of like in the business for the planet, right? Is there big claim? And in my eyes, if they're in the business for the planet, they would fully convert to doing repairs only, like not mm -hmm. selling new pieces of apparel. Um, but the other view of that is like, they're kind of setting the bar for sustainability for other companies. And I'm curious what you make of that. Like, do you think they're doing more good by setting that bar or would it, would they do more good by just doing repairs? If that makes sense. Yeah, Matt, it does make, uh, it, it makes a good question and I don't want to compliment you on the quality of the question. Um, this brings to line two, two avenues of thought. One is if you buy a Patagonia jacket, it means that you're not buying some turd of an item by another brand that's equally bad. People want to consume. 
And I've already talked about the fast fashion generation from when you're 12 to about 22, where you're influenced by, you know, wearing clothing, presenting your own personality. So there is that demand. There are the people with too much money who always want to buy. So in one way, they're providing product for those people. But the more important thing is not they're providing product, they're tagging on to that product, the communication, and they're trying to get them to consider additional factors. And I talked to you, if, for instance, you're going to buy Patagonia cotton this spring or actually North Face cotton this spring, you're going to find regenerative agriculture. And regenerative agriculture will only work because you can get regenerative agricultural leather from cows, but it will only work if we cut down on the amount of meat that we have. So, yeah, Patagonia, and hopefully I was not too critical of them, are the best people at communicating their sustainability values. They do not have the most sustainable product. They do not have the most sustainable business model. But we're in a world where I, and I described it like sat-nav, we don't actually know what the best business model is yet. So right at this time, I am keener that we try everything. And then we see which one gets traction and take off. So I am being critical of Patagonia, but I, they also have my respect because they're doing so much more. And really good cases of that. Um, Patagonia created Ulex. That was a project that they came off the back of, which was a wetsuit not from neoprene. Um, you're going to find out this year about something. Uh, they have a new durable water-resistant finish, which is stain-resistant. DWRs, the whole industry is fascinated by, and we've always been able to repel water. What we haven't been able to do is keep the stains off. And their new version, which is developed by a Swiss company called BST, Patagonia or Tinshed Ventures, their parent company, put a million dollars into the Swiss green, green chemist. So I'm answering it as in, yeah, Patagonia, they stick their head up. You can throw dirt at them, but they do do good. You know, does that make sense to you, Matt? What do you think of Patagonia? Oh, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth with Patagonia, especially with that advertisement you brought up, like the don't buy this jacket. To me, like I, I hope that they were sincere with that. But part of but me it's the most like, skillful bit of marketing to uplift your sales by 30%. Right. Like, was it just capitalizing on reverse psychology or was it sincere? You know, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's why I look at the overall effect and I think, are they raising the bar? And yeah, to me, I can justify it because clothing has a bad reputation, but clothing is not the worst thing around. The amount of clothing this planet consumes between 80 and 150 billion items of clothing every year. Those numbers are just crazy. We've only got 8 billion people on the planet. You know, that that's what we really need to think about, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Hey, no worries.
Oh, great, great questions. I think we could probably stay on for another hour, but I know a lot of these kids have another class to get off to. So thank you so much for your time. This is oh, your no evening, Charles. So thanks for spending your evening with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, you guys, thanks for joining us today. Um, it, it's fine. I wish I had all the answers. Can I just point out, it's your students who are going to have better answers than me. And start the conversations now, because it's only by working with others, we're going to get better answers. If you just copy what my generation's done, we're terminally bad. Yep. You know, you guys have the baton. Use it responsibly. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.